Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next Chaos Crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi, it's Dr. Colleen, and I am back with a guest that is such an inspiration. Through her story, there is inspiration for hope for immigrants who come to America and are looking for a better life. And there's also inspiration for young women who maybe are feeling hopeless and helpless in the situations that they're in. I often talk about resiliency and tenacity as key traits to surviving traumas, and my guest today has that and so much more. I was actually a little intimidated to talk with her. You may hear that I'm a little flustered at times in the interview, and I don't think that happens too much, but I was a little intimidated by interviewing her, and you'll understand when you hear all that she has gone through and all that she has accomplished. My guest is Mona Johnson, and you probably have no idea who she is because that's how life is. People who have survived things in life that take superhero-like strengths to overcome or accomplish are just walking among us, living their life. The short version of Mona's story is that she was brought up in a progressive Egyptian family who had to flee the country for safety, only to experience her father struggle to provide for his family in America after having a prestigious position in their homeland where, you know, interacting with political and actual royalty were a real thing for her family. All the while, as he is now struggling to provide for them, she survives all sorts of discrimination and abuse. Um, As she grew up, she ended up with an abusive husband and she figured out how to leave. And we talk so much about how she got through that, even advice she would give herself if she could go back in time. Uh, You'll want to hear that. And she got out and she then provided for her daughters and figured out that she could go into the army and even figured out what position and career path she could get in the army that would allow her to provide for her daughters while she was a single parent. She eventually did marry again and had a different experience this time in relationship, but her career you know, everything that Mona went through didn't stop there. That wasn't her success of just getting herself into the army. No, she then went and withstood all the anti-Muslim things that go on, the discrimination, the sexual bias against women. So she had it all. She was an Arab Muslim immigrant woman in the military and she was moving up the ranks. She actually made it up to lieutenant colonel, and she is thought to be the only woman of her cultural position and female who has made it to that position in the armed forces. So she is a quiet but tremendous powerhouse. She is now retired and I had the honor of talking to Mona about her life after reading her book, Not Created Equal. She certainly has a lot to say on surviving cultural trauma, physical abuse, living in fear with her family as a child, and how she pulled herself out of that abusive marriage and what it was like to be subjected to discrimination because of being a Muslim woman in America and then within the upper ranks of the military. I don't know. Maybe you'd be intimidated to talk to her too, but... I thoroughly, ultimately enjoyed my conversation with Mona, and I hope you do as well. So we're going to get into it right now. 
Hey, it's Dr. Colleen here with a quick break to let you know what I've got going on over at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. That's the site where you can get some exclusive items just for supporting the show with a small contribution each month. I've got four levels to pick from, but the best value will be tier two, the chaos crushers tier. For signing up to be a chaos crusher at just $9 a month, the big thing you're going to get is three new self-help recordings each month done exclusively for my Patreon subscribers. You will also get a chaos crushing ebook and a shout out on the show for your support. Now, if you're in a position to support just a little bit more, there are ways to get even a 20 minute coaching call with me every month. Go over and check it out at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. And if you wish you could support the show, but it's just not in your budget to give a few dollars, that is perfectly okay. I am just glad that you're here with me on this podcasting journey. So let's get back into the show. Mona Johnson, thank you so much for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. So I was really looking forward to speaking to you. You know, you you lived so much life well before your career in the military. As a young child, your family fled Egypt. You were then in exile in Saudi Arabia for a while. And then you all landed in Inglewood, California. And I'd love for you to share a bit about that experience. Uh, and specifically, if you can talk about how life was different for your family, because I know your father had a certain level of career in law enforcement back in Egypt, and his closest friends were Anwar Sadat and Ahmed Yamani, two very powerful men. Can you talk about the difference of coming to the United States and how your family life changed one way or the other because you also fled for safety? Yes. So this was during the uh, early to mid-50s that my father started to rise in his career. And then, of course, then I was born, My first my older brother, Tarek, and then I. And he was pretty well established. And this was a time when... Egypt was pretty much colonized by the British, and there was a, a good established community of Germans and French there too. So it was quite westernized. It's not like it is now uh, by any means. They had Western music, Western movies, Western dress, and my parents were considered upper middle class and lived a good life with you know being members of the local. Um, a club, I guess you call it, like like a community, not community club, but... Uh, country club? Country club, yes, yes, thank you, in Heliopolis. So they were, they were living the good life. And then, um, you know, politics intervened, and my father, his, his conscience could not allow things to happen as they did. President uh, Mohammed Naguib became the first president after King Farouk, the ousted King Farouk during the 1952 uh, revolution. And so the first president of modern Egypt was uh, Mohammed Naguib. He was a lieutenant colonel in the army. And uh, along with him was um, President uh, Kamal Abdel Nasser. And well, he wasn't president then, but he was a major then. Mm -hmm. But he became president because Mohammed Naguib was not considered aggressive enough. And so he kind of put Mohammed Naguib under house arrest and took over. And then Gamal Abdel Nasser became president and he was quite aggressive. He was very popular with the people. Uh, they loved him, but under behind the scenes, he was rough. So anyone who, who uh, spoke against uh, the president was immediately arrested and uh, put in prison mm. and tortured. Uh, and my father just his conscience would not allow that. And he was in a position where he had the power to release anyone or keep them imprisoned. And he released the people that he believed did not deserve these charges. And so before he knew it, my father was discovered by the government, i.e. the president and the higher ups, and he wanted his head Wow. And so my father escaped with the help of my mother's brother, who was a pilot um, for Egyptian Air, Airlines, Air Egypt. And they smuggled us out and we took cover in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. which at the time my father had gone to college with Ahmed Zaki Yamani, 
who was one of his friends. And at the time, he was a, an attorney um, for the uh, the royal family. But, you know, he was not high level at the time. He was just my father's friend and he hit us. And, and we, lived, we lived in Saudi Arabia, thanks be to the help of this family friend uh-huh. and his connections. And we lived there for two years. Um, but my father somehow saw that I was not going to be able to get an education there past the third grade. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, things are much different now. But women in Saudi Arabia at the time, the general population, women just did not get an education. There were just no schools for girls, period. And the only school that was was for the, the daughters of the royal family, the daughters and the relatives of the royal family. And so my father's friend talked to his connections and allowed me to attend that school. So all the other girls were princesses and I was not. (laughs) (laughs) The the whole story is just so fascinating of all that was going on. And you would have been about how old during this time? Um, I was six to eight. Wow. By the time I became eight, my father realized that even at that school, I was only going to go to third grade because that school, that was the limit for girls, even the royal family girls, third grade. And and uh. um, my father knew that he could probably get a very good position in Saudi Arabia and so could my brothers, but I would not have a chance. My future would depend on whoever I married. Mm-hmm. And he wanted me to have a equal chances, my brothers, for an education and opportunity. And so we came to America. Your father was very progressive in so many ways. Oh my gosh, yes. He sure was. Mm -hmm. And he fought. I mean, he lived by that. It's incredibly demonstrated in just this short part of what you've talked about your life so far. I was very impressed with that from and I challenged everything, and I think he he saw that in me. And being in places like Saudi Arabia, challenging anyone or questioning anything that opposed uh, the the going society or rule, it was not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would not have been a good thing for my future. Um, and so, in in order to provide me an equal opportunity, yeah. Yeah, we came to America, and boy, that it was rough. It was uh-huh. rough. But my mother was also equally as she was not happy in Saudi Arabia. She had the freedom of Western women in, in Egypt. And then you come to Saudi Arabia, and they wanted her to wear the, the abaya, which is like a hijab. Mm-hmm. She was not having it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she fought that tooth and nail. And my father supported her. So it was it was good that we had his support as women or girls, but most men over there back then did not. And um, she was able to be herself. So your father is this uh, one hand is very progressive and he sacrificed so much. And your mother was also had that fighting spirit as well. You tell a story in the book where your mother tried to rip the whip out of somebody's hand as he was trying to whip her for not dressing properly and and you witnessed that as a child yeah what did witnessing that do to you like what impact did that have on you oh I was horrified first of all um Saudi Arabia still has until today a clothing police or they call it social police wow and they, they're just young men that just monitor the streets and make sure that everyone behaves according to the Islamic social norms. And that includes the, uh, the, the dress that women wear, uh, and men, by the way. But they're allowed to wear Western, the men were allowed to wear Western clothes, just not very revealing. Uh, but the women had to cover uh, everything but your hands and your, your feet and your eyes were supposed to show. Their primary duty was to make sure that every, all the stores closed during prayer times, that people didn't drink, didn't um, social, men and women didn't socialize, mm-hmm. yeah, and the clothing and what have you. You know, they just wanted to make sure the social norms were were obeyed, 
And anyone that didn't, then they started whipping them and lashing them. And he went after my mother and said, you need to cover this and this. And, and so he started whipping her legs and her arms. And Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, <laughs> I just screamed. I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, I froze. <laughs> but then I saw her. She, she defied him. And she stood up to him. And she said, I'm not Saudi. I'm Egyptian. And I'm not going to wear that. I never have and I never will. And she took the whip out of his hand and started in on him. (laughs) Before I knew it, all these other guys on the different corners of the street and the the midways um, all started to close in on us. And I was just a little girl and I was so afraid. And they carried us off to a detention center. Oh, no until my father came and picked us up Mm. and my father had to apologize profusely and say this you know this won't happen again and but it did because she never wore that abaya again but they realized then that we were not Saudi citizens and we didn't have to wear that (laughs) oh so you were even like in the end your mother could wear what she wanted because she was not actually a a citizen of Saudi Arabia it wasn't just for being there Goodness. Yes. Uh, now, now I, I, I wondered about the impact that that story had on you because later in life, you ended up in that wasn't the the only violence of uh, you know from men that that you dealt with personally. That later on, you you married a man who ended up to be quite abusive. And if you feel like any of those cultural, you know, quote unquote norms that you saw as an early child if they influenced the fact that you ended up in that relationship later on and this was your first husband no absolutely not my father never never was abusive to my mother no Um, yes and and that was my role model Um, okay as a matter of fact my mother wanted me to marry a muslim just because that was just the way it was supposed to be and of course, there weren't very many Muslims back then um, that were educated or available. Um, and we're talking about the early to mid 70s. So she introduced me to a friend who knew his, his family, but my, my family didn't know anything about it. And my father didn't know anything about my mother's um, plans to introduce, have me introduced to this fella. And uh, when they first met him was at my engagement uh, because my parents were overseas at this time. My father worked um, for the Defense Department and happened to get another job in Saudi Arabia, which he had applied for as a um, the U.S. Uh, envoy for the newly developed Saudi Arabian um, National Guard. Because, mind you now, we're talking about the 70s. Now, Saudi Arabia really didn't become powerful or any important country in the world stage until after they discovered oil, which was after the 60s and then the 70s. And then Mm -hmm. they became powerful and certainly not anything that they are now. And so they had to establish uh, an army or a uh, national guard. And my father was able to get that position because he worked for the Defense Department uh, as a civilian and spoke Arabic and interpreted. And so he reconnected with his old friends. (laughs) Who now had much bigger positions in the world. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then then there was that that oil embargo of the 70s. and. Mr. Zaki Amani, who who was now Sheikh Zaki Amani, <laughs> was the head of it. It was really a, quite amazing, and and through those connections, you know, my father was able to reconnect with the royal family, um, who at the time, <laughs> goodness, <laughs> I know, it, it was really quite amazing. But to uh, kind of go back to your original question of how it felt because they, I think it, it impacted us children less than it impacted my parents. Of course, the fact that they came from a upper middle class family 
came to the U.S. with their savings. Mm -hmm. And slowly the savings dwindled because my father couldn't get a job. Uh, um, yeah. we, we ended up being quite poor for many years. The only jobs my father was able to acquire was uh, a bread delivery man or a milk delivery man uh, uh-huh. or a watchman, uh, a night watchman, and sometimes two jobs plus at, at a time. It's one of the things that I most admire about people who've immigrated to the United States is so many people have had to give up so much that they worked for to have a different life and to give their children a different life or to hope to have a different life. I don't know. I just think we're so spoiled over here growing up and in the United States and just get to live as we want to, as we can, as our parents provide for us. But without the knowledge of like what it takes to come from another country and then come as persons who are Muslim, who were not very well accepted. And certainly you faced a lot of discrimination when you were, when you were young and, um, and the adversity that, you know, even just that goes on through the military and your later career. You know, I just think that we don't realize some days just how, how nice we have it over here when we hear stories like yours, that there's just so much trauma. And that was before you were eight, eight or 10 years old of cultural traumas to get here and then hit with another cultural trauma when, you know, you might find out that people don't like people I don't even know how to say it because it's so not how I speak about people, but, you know, like speak about Muslims or, you know, on discrimination. And I know at some point you ended up in St. Louis and were um, very, uh, faced a lot of racism, discrimination, adversity, and yet you still ended up as a patriot. You rose, as I mentioned in your introduction, rose to the ranks of lieutenant colonel in our military, in the army. And how did you come through all of that and become and and be so patriotic? I don't know. I I guess I wanted equality so bad. I didn't receive it growing up. Although my my father was forward thinking in terms of cultural norms, you know, they were still much attached to the old world. I wanted to be treated like my brothers were. I wanted the respect that my brothers had. And I always felt like I had to work twice as hard, if not harder, in order to be recognized or um, have the compliments that that my brothers received just for being them themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I had to fight for my rights. I I really did, and I felt so alone oftentimes because nobody else was in my position, and I couldn't identify with anybody. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be black. I wanted to be Mexican. I wanted to be Asian. I wanted to be anything, a Christian. Uh, I wanted to be anything, a, a part of a group, but we weren't a part of any group at that time. Now, of course, it's different. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, and there's still so much discrimination that goes on. Uh, the questions I want to ask you about this There's so many different directions I want to go, but just in mentioning that, like, you know, we've even had within the last four years, we've had inflammatory messages that, you know, that our president perpetuated about Muslims, you know, even calling for active duty Muslims to carry a special ID card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite this, what would you say to a young Muslim who maybe wants to stand up for his country, this country, as they might want to? You know, would you still encourage them to get into the military and do what they think is right for themselves? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I would. And because we, you, we as a human race or a human beings, we have to stand up for ourselves. We can't allow someone to cow us from wanting to be who we are. That's how many people rose from the bottom ranks to become who they really want to be, whether as a group or whether as an individual. You you just have to keep on trucking was the old term. 
Yes. <laughs> when I was growing up. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that going into the Air, the Air Force was initially what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a pilot, period. But in the civilian sector, that was not allowed. And neither was it in the Air Force. But mm-hmm. I thought perhaps if I went in as a nurse, then I could eventually become a pilot. But that didn't uh, happen either. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be. But I know you were you were inspired to become a pilot, though. That was by your, your uncle, correct? My uncle, who, yes. And unfortunately, we lost him through a... The plane went down over Sicily in the ocean when we first came to America and all the everyone was killed, the whole crew and passengers. Yeah, that was quite how quite tragic. Sad. Yes. Anyway, and they couldn't recover anything but the tail of the plane, which is how they knew it was that. Oh, I'm so, so that like I just again the, the idea of all these repeated traumas continue to happen when you were so young. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's tragic. And you were inspired by who he was when he was living, or inspired by what you wanted to remember him by to uh, that it inspired you to want to be a pilot. I was inspired by him by his living that he was our hero. Oh. He helped us escape. He helped us uh, to freedom. And that inspired me. And of course, when he went down in, in his plane, um, we, you know, first of all, we couldn't, we, my parents had a rough time getting a hold of my grandmother uh, and grandfather. Well, my grandfather had just passed too. Uh, it was just a very, and my, my cousins were alone and, and, we really didn't have a connection to our family anymore. It wasn't like FaceTime or, no, or of email course not. Or, <laughs> or free phone calls overseas. Oh my gosh, it was just so different. It was the days of multiple dollar long distance charges. And if your family is struggling just to make make ends meet, nobody's paying for long distance phone charges. Yes, it was a struggle for my parents and yeah. And throughout the book, um, there's a theme of tension between you and your mother, um, although your mother was was a fighter. And I wondered if that is something that maybe that tension was there because you both are fighters. And I wondered if how, because I know she encouraged you to get um, to marry your first husband and he is the father of your of your daughters. And did you have resentment when he turned out to be so abusive? Did you have resentment towards your mother and how you resolved that? Yes, yes, I did. Yes, my mother was a fighter. She always had been. And I admired that. I, I truly admired that. But uh, we were both at loggerheads because I wanted my way and I was young and, and I had to obey Mm-hmm. And my mother was a disciplinarian because my father was always away at work, whether it's one job or another or looking for a job or going back to school and getting his college degrees. Mm-hmm. So it was my mother, up to my mother to do the disciplining. And she was quite Teutonic. <laughs> she was, that was the German part of her. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I was uh, free spirited. I wanted to to join the, you know, the counterculture revolution. And of <laughs> course, the, that was the worst time that a Muslim girl could come to America was during the early '60s, when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones oh, came. Oh, which <laughs> shatter it would shatter the parents, right? And they they think, oh, we brought her here for a better life, and everybody's gone crazy now. <laughs> they were like in shock, like, oh my god! You know? <laughs> and so I was on a short leash. Yeah, I was always on a short leash, and my brothers weren't, and I resented that. Yeah. So, so your mother, your mother was a fighter, but she held on to the values that she had were ingrained in her. So she was still pretty, pretty traditional. And so your brothers had the, the freedoms that you didn't, and they, you're, they brought you there to get you specifically more freedoms, but yet mom still pulled you back to what she knew as the, the way women should be. 
more more education, I should say. Mm-hmm. Freedoms as I got older, but not as a teenager. Uh-huh. And I can see it now, you know, as an older adult and having raised my daughters. Uh, boys, I mean, you know, even though I had four brothers, I really didn't know what boys were like that weren't related to you. You know, and I could have easily been taken advantage of. So in their eyes, it was protecting me. And they were quite adamant. Uh, You know, virginity was very, very much uh, uh, valued. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, still is amongst Muslim families. So virginity was valued and we, we... And it it really is about helping, as you said, like your brothers maybe were protecting you, your mother was trying to protect you. And yet, you know, through her influence and wanting you to marry a Muslim and not that you just happened to marry a Muslim who was not very good to women and and good to you. And you did um, suffer domestic violence and you dedicated, uh, I think, two chapters in the book to what Mm -hmm. you experienced. And, you know, is there something you would tell your younger self during that time of your life? You know, something that you would have told her that would have either helped her either move on earlier or, or, stand up differently or get out, you know, is there something else you would have, is there something you would have told yourself during that time now looking back? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. (laughs) Um, I, I probably initially would have told myself to go with my heart and initially I did. And I didn't, I, I accepted him thinking, Oh yeah, he's Egyptian. He's Muslim. He's educated. He's like my father that I just assumed he would be like my father and it would be all good because my father was good. Uh Of course, you know, I didn't know anything about men. I was only 22, hadn't dated much at all. And I knew nothing really. I was very, very innocent and naive and just assumed that because he's the same place as my father is, it would be good, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't. And and it was actually on that very day that we married, and I explained about that dinner, mm-hmm. um, that he turned, and my bro- my two brothers were like in shock. And the young, the older me would probably have told the younger me to get an annulment. Ah, oh, and just get out then. And just get out then, yeah. Yes. But I didn't listen to my heart. I kept thinking, oh, it'll get better, and, and he's in graduate school, and he's nervous, and and he's stressed, and I just kept giving every excuse possible. Mm-hmm. And plus, it was shameful to get a divorce then. It wasn't like, you know, over the years it got easier, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to shame my family. Well, and, and you went through, I mean, it's interesting because this is now uh, many years ago, and I assume that by not by not going with that instinct, and so many times I, in the counseling that I do with my clients, it's it's talking about, you know, please listen to your gut. It it is uh-huh. in, inevitably correct. It doesn't matter whether it tells you something good is going to happen or something bad, but inevitably your gut tells you a lot. Your your instinct, your heart tells you a lot. And mm-hmm. um, I assume that when, as you got through that marriage and, you know, and then you had two daughters. And so like many women who are in abusive relationships, they often feel helpless. They often feel stuck. And yet you're a woman who eventually got out and got into the military and then came to such high ranks. How do you think you found the wherewithal to do that, to even find the confidence to enter the military after getting out of that marriage? The first time that I my father wanted me, took me to a lawyer was right after my first daughter was born. He wanted me to leave this man immediately. Mm. Um, I took a six week break and went to Switzerland to visit my aunt and stayed there. And he, for some reason, he kept calling and talked me into promising me that things would get better. And I went back to him, you know, and I wanted to give him another chance. For some reason, my heart, I wanted to give him every chance possible. I went back to him and then I had my second daughter. And things, of course, didn't get any better. Mm -hmm. And uh, months later, you know, things just, as I explained in the book, just got worse and worse. And finally, I, my daughter told me, 
if she repeated what her father said, and she was only three, the older one, and in Arabic, she told me to shut up. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and shut up, Yabit is actually means girl, but it's a very, very rancorous name. It actually is bitch. <laughs> uh -huh. To have your three-year-old yeah. reflect that back to you just says life has gone very wrong. Yeah, and I said, oh my gosh, I am not going to raise children that are going to treat me that way. And mm -hmm. just to talk myself into being strong. I've got to do this for them because I am their example. And if I accept that, they're going to accept it in their life. And so to answer your question, that's what gave me the strength. I had to do it for my daughters. I had to be strong for them and continue to be strong for them in the army. Yes, and I wanted to ask you about that then. Then you go into the into the army and you go in as a nurse and you have to maneuver, right? Parenting, mothering, and being in, in the military. Uh, were there times where you just were overwhelmed and wanted to, and thought, what have I, you know, did I do the right thing? Not in leaving your husband, but in going after this career. And how did you find the strength when you did meet with adversity or even discrimination along the way in that world? To be honest, I didn't recognize discrimination at first. I didn't recognize unfairness at first. I just saw it as higher ranking and lower ranking uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, officers and enlisted. Yeah. And so then it wasn't until I was initiated, so to speak, and saw that um, not only higher ranking officers, but officers who had positions above you, even though they're the same rank, mm -hmm. would take advantage of you in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so how did I deal with it? I just, uh, I went with the program, but <laughs> passively aggressive. Okay. You know, I didn't talk out because I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. But at the same time, I protected myself um, in not being in, in precarious situation. And I, I suspect that your previous life experience like gave you those those skills to be able to nuance that uh mm -hmm. to to be able to kind of keep your head up as these things are going on you know i want to ask a question because there's so much that young young women can find strength and, and inspiration from your story. Also immigrant, both men and women, immigrants who came in can get in, inspired. But I think particularly women in general can be inspired by your story. And, you know, a lot of your story is about being, you know, the, the only one of you in, in certain cir circumstances. So the only Arab in an all white school, the only daughter, even possibly, probably the only Arab Muslim immigrant woman to serve in the U S armed forces, like, you know, and then you even reached Lieutenant Colonel. So what advice do you have for young women who feel that they are the only one and they just can't see past that, that they just feel like, gosh, I am the only one in this position and it doesn't feel right or doesn't feel like that's where they're supposed to be. First of all, you have to have confidence that you're in this world for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like there was a purpose for each and every one of us, no matter who we are or where we come from. And I, I just leaned on that. First and foremost, I had to support myself and support my daughters I had to be successful for them mm -hmm. and I think that made all the difference in the world I keep telling my daughters I don't know what I would have done without them uh, I lived, lived for them <laughs> they probably gave you a lot a lot of strength that you didn't know that you could tap into and purpose they yes gave me purpose purpose. I, I don't know what else to say. I'd love to say something more extravagant but, <laughs> or elaborate. Right. But what you did say was in, right, that of course your, your daughters gave you purpose, but for the woman who maybe isn't, doesn't have children at that point is, or at all is 
to have confidence that you are where you are supposed to be. You are, you have confidence that you are in that role for a reason, that there is a purpose to you being there. So you might not be able to know it right then and there, but, but there is something there. And to know that for now, that is what it is. And you will maybe learn to figure out what that purpose is while you're there but you might be able to look back later and go, oh, I get why I was in that position. Yeah, and, and I think it, I probably would not have been able to accomplish that career had I not been a nurse practitioner. That was mm-hmm. a big factor. Um, that opportunity came up one and a half years into the Army. That course came up. It was a brand new idea uh, that nurses can become nurse practitioners. Ah. Um, no one had known about it because now we're talking about the early eighties. Yes. And there was, you know, that I had to constantly explain to my patients, uh, and people who were, I told them I was a nurse practitioner. They didn't know, is that like part way a, a doctor they would ask me? And I said, no, it's a completely different model. Yes. I think people still have those questions <laughs> when we, <laughs> when we see nurse practitioners. <laughs> yeah. And the promise that they gave me was to, at the time, it was only a six-month condensed program. Mm -hmm. But a few years later, I went into a master's program and completed the 18-month master's degree. But uh, they had told me if I completed the course, I would be guaranteed nurse practitioner positions for the next few assignments. Uh And that guaranteed me office hours, Monday through Friday, Mm. from 7.30 to 4.30. And that enabled me to put the girls in preschool um, daycare and after-school daycare. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I continued to work the shifts, I I had a terrible time with babysitters at first, either not showing up or not showing up in time or... uh, (laughs) whatever. Right. So saw that as an opportunity for how you could have the career and raise your daughters and, and, and have some stability in that, in that military life. Right. Yes, absolutely. So, well, now we're getting to the, to the end of where your story leaves off in the book. And towards the end of the book, you mentioned getting a letter from President Obama. And can you tell me how that felt to receive that letter from him and that recognition? Oh my gosh. It was like I was on top of the world (laughs) because I never felt like I mattered much to anybody, you know, as anyone outside my family. And for, for a president to, to answer my letter. And it was a quite, quite a personal letter. It wasn't a form letter. Mm-hmm. It addressed my concerns because that was when I heard a certain presidential candidate at the time mm-hmm. at the DNC, I believe it was, or after the DNC, talked very badly about a Muslim family, a gold gold star family, the Pakistani uh, gold star family who lost their son in Iraq. And he just went on a tirade about Muslims and we all know who I'm talking about. Yes, we do. Yes. (laughs) And I felt like that was me right there, listening to someone talk about me as someone that served as an immigrant. Now, I didn't die, thank God, but I served my country. Yes, you did. For someone to talk like that in such an insulting, demeaning manner, I just went and wrote a very emotional letter to President Barack Obama and said, this is how I feel about it. And yeah, I I received quite a response that honored me to say. (laughs) And I think very significantly too in this, the story that you just told was that even how far you had come in life, you still had this narrative about yourself. I didn't really realize, like I never really mattered that much except to my family. And yet Mm -hmm. you had been probably invaluable to the people that had served with you and under you over the years. And um, that 
it still was a very um, bold and vulnerable thing for you to do then to reach out to uh, President Obama like that. And so to have him respond was so impactful. Uh, I think that's a, a really nice story about how you never know who's listening. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know who's who, who is impacted by what you're doing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, I, especially young people. But to have the president of the United States, you know, you just yes. never know where you matter. Even the president of the United States is definitely laminated and framed. <laughs> Wonderful, as it, as it should be, right? I mean, <laughs> I would be shocked if it wasn't. And so now we're going um, to wrap up, but you open the book, and I think it's in the first chapter where you talk about your Muslim family tradition of having a Christmas tree. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that is a tradition that you have kept throughout the years. Yes, yes. Because now my mother was Germ- half German, and that was her mother's tradition. Yes, we kept it as we were children growing up. I kept it in my first marriage, although it caused a lot of friction. Mm. And I kept it as a single parent. And then, of course, when I remarried. Yes, yes. absolutely. Well, it's just, it's just it, again, it says this, this this idea that you don't have to conform to all of the ideals and all of the values that um, just because you identify a certain way or you're part of a certain religion or a certain culture. And uh, I think it was a, a neat story of just kind of speaks of who your, what, who your family were specifically, I guess, who your parents were, that that tradition was started um, with them. Um, you, you know, it's actually in Islam, and this is kind of a, something that a lot of Western people or non-Muslim people may not understand about Muslims. First of all, they're not monolithic. Um, Muslims come from all over the world, Western, Eastern, Southern, (laughs) Northern. Mm -hmm. And they tend to incorporate their culture with their religion, as other religions do too. But Muslims recognize Jesus Christ, and they honor him, and they honor Miriam, Mary, Mary, Mother Mary. Mm -hmm. I believe she's mentioned about 13 times or more in the Quran. I don't think she's mentioned in the Bible, but that's how much they they honor her. He's recognized not as the son of God, but as a prophet of God, like Moses, Mm -hmm. Muhammad, and all the other prophets, Joseph and all them, (laughs) you know, the Old Testament, New Testament, as I explained in the first chapter, too. Yes. But then you have extremes in every everything. You know, you have you have fundamentalists that will tell you otherwise, just like you have fundamentalists, Christians and Jewish and you name it. Of course, of course. <laughs> yes. I want to thank you, Mona Johnson, for being with me on the show today. Thank you, Colleen. It was my privilege to be able to interview you. I was a little intimidated by how much you had gone through and accomplished in your life uh, to get here. And and I have a lot of respect for the life that you've lived. And so I just want to express that before we cut off uh, the interview here. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Did you know that each time you enter Amazon to shop and you go in through my storefront at amazon.com slash shop slash Dr. Colleen Mullen, a small portion of everything you purchase for 24 hours goes to help support the cost of running this podcast. So go ahead, try it out. And while you're there, you'll also find some of my favorite self-care items along with the Coaching Through Chaos bookshelf where you'll find the books for every guest we've had along the way. Thanks so much for supporting the show. I don't think there's too many people in my life that I'm going to talk to that have survived as much diversity and adversity as retired Lieutenant Colonel Mona Johnson. Any one of her periods of life could be a book in itself, but you can read her full story by picking up a copy of her book, Not Created Equal, An Immigrant Muslim Woman's Pursuit of Equality in Her Family, the Army, and America. And as with all of my guests, you can find her book on my Amazon bookshelf at coachingthroughchaospodcast.com slash bookshelf. Let me know what you think. Coming up, I have lots of great guests, and that's going to be in the new year. I've got people who are 
advocates for others, experts at what they do, and great stories of triumphing over other adversities. And I'm so excited for you to hear those conversations and to meet all sorts of new people over the course of the new year. But to round out this year, I decided to do an update or even for some it'll be an introduction to some of my past guests and the topics that we've talked about. You know, I've been doing this show for five years, and for as much as I've been doing it for five years, it's been kind of on and off, but I recommitted and we have far surpassed a full year of episodes. So my catalog is not huge for five years, but it is enough for someone who might be a new listener to kind of get overwhelmed and go, you know, I don't know, I'll just keep moving forward rather than go back in the catalog. So since the show is around to help you and me conquer the chaos in our lives, you know, we have so much of it right now. And because it's, as everybody has documented, it's unprecedented. I'm going to say it's to help us navigate and control some of the chaos in our lives eventually conquering it. But for now, I'll take navigating it. In any case, I have so many helpful episodes that we've done over the last few years that I thought I would give you a a short introduction, reminder, reintroduction to some of those episodes. This episode will come out right between Christmas and New Year's. Might be a great time if you've got some downtime to catch up on a few episodes. See if it can help you out. See if you learn a little something new or if it helps you regroup and get focused and uh, set your sights on the new year. So as we get going, I want to thank my editor Steve at Podcast Mansfield for all of his ongoing help. And I want to give a little birthday shout out to my sweet sister Susie who, if you did join me at the relaunch uh, just over a year ago, you will have known all about her from the Susie Chronicles. So I will give you an update on all the ins and outs of managing her life at the next episode as well. I hope you look forward to that episode as much as I am looking forward to creating it for you. And until then, be kind to yourself and have patience with others. We really don't know what other people are experiencing, even if we think it's similar to what we're experiencing. We all come in with different baggage, which changes our perception. There's a meme going around that people are uh, saying that we're all in this together, something about being on the same ship, uh, but we're not on the same ship. We are all in this together in our own individual ships in the same chaotic sea. So keeping that in mind, kindness and patience will go a long way. Until next time, take care.